0: Welcome to 10-Minute Tech This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Many people may have heard about some parents' concerns that giving their children vaccines can cause negative effects, especially that vaccines can increase children's chances for autism. Within the scientific literature, this claim has now been widely studied and disproven. But in the public sphere, there's still concern, in some pockets, that vaccines are dangerous for children where did this idea come from? That's something that my guest today is interested in.
1: Hi, I'm Lauren Kolodjeski. I'm an assistant professor at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California. I teach in the Communication Studies Department, but my area of expertise is rhetoric of science and medicine.
0: Dr. Kolodjeski looks at a key text that contributed to what we call a manufactured controversy. That's not a controversy that exists among scientists, but one that exists for ideological reasons in the public sphere. And according to her research, a 1998 article by Andrew Wakefield and several other co-authors though Wakefield seems to be the instigator of the piece, contributed strongly to this public idea that vaccines and autism are related. The article contains several features that allowed it to foster this controversy. It contained a lot of hedges, that allowed Wakefield to make claims in public that were stronger than those supported by the data in the article itself. It also used the passive voice to hide the fact that parents and not researchers were the ones reporting some of these controversies about the MMR vaccine and its relation to the onset of autism. I really enjoyed getting Dr. Kolejewski's insight on how these manufactured controversies emerge and how we can better equip the public to deal with them. I hope you enjoy the interview as well. So welcome to the podcast, Lauren. I'm really excited to talk to you today about something that is still relevant, even though your article came out a few years ago, which is the um, autism vaccine controversy. And you approach this controversy by looking at um, an article by Wakefield et al. Um, And I guess we should just start by talking about what is this article and how does it contribute to this autism vaccine controversy?
1: Yeah, so a couple of clarifications for our discussion today. Even though there's multiple authors on this article, I typically reference it as primarily as Wakefield as the author. And that's because it later came out that he pretty much wrote the entire thing and then just got the other authors to sign off on it. So I kind of focus on him as the sole author even though it's a multi-author piece. And then also talking about it as an autism vaccine controversy with controversy in quotes, because it very much is not a controversy in the scientific literature, but that is how it's generally referenced. So for ease of terminology, sometimes that's the easiest thing to say, and that's how I reference it in the article. But I came to this as a manufactured controversy, which is certainly something that's covered in the rhetoric of science literature. But this article, if you read a lot of the media stories that talk about this concern over a possible link between vaccines and autism, a lot of the summaries point to this article, the 1998 Wakefield et al. article published in The Lancet. And so that seemed like a really kind of keystone moment in this controversy as it evolved over time. And so that's why I decided to look at it and to see what was going on in this article and why it was sort of the sole thing that people pointed to as, as a starting point for this. And when I first looked into it, my curiosity was piqued even more because there's an explicit and direct denial in the article itself saying we did not prove a link between this syndrome that we observed and the MMR vaccine. So I was just flummoxed. How could people be referencing this article when it explicitly says, we did not show this. So that's kind of how this study got started.
0: Okay, interesting. So you've got this article that in in 1998, despite saying that it finds no link between particular vaccines and autism, has been used later on to say that there might be a link and has been used by proponents of that link in what, what you say is a manufactured controversy, right? It's not a controversy among Scientist is a controversy that was generated in the press later. And you argue that one of the ways this happened is that there were particular sort of stylistic features, rhetorical features of this article that generated enough ambiguity so that this sort of controversy could be manufactured. What kinds of things in the article allowed this controversy to emerge later?
1: So there's three main things that I focus on in my analysis. And the most prevalent rhetorical feature that I focus on is the use of hedges. But I also look at Wakefield's use of passive voice and then just um, strategic word choice and the ways in which those rhetorical choices work together to create a polysemous text that gets interpreted as, at the very least, showing that a link was possible um, and even implying in places that it was rather likely. Just to do a little bit of definition work. Hedges are typically qualifying phrases. They can even just be simple words like may or possibly. And within the context of a scientific article, it's a way of making a claim, but also acknowledging that there's a lack of absolute certainty. It's a really standard practice in scientific writing. Likewise with passive voice, as you know, that typically puts the emphasis on the results rather than the person finding them. Also pretty standard practice in technical writing. So these are not unusual features to have in a research article, but they did create enough ambiguity and enough of a an opening for Wakefield to use once the article was published to air some concerns that he had about the MMR vaccine. And so he uses the publication of the article as a platform that he later builds on to raise additional concerns or peak public concern about the possibility of a link between autism and vaccines. And where, so I mentioned there's an explicit denial in the article, we did not prove a link. But in the discussion section of the article, which is a space where authors often speculate about the significance of their results or their findings. In the discussion section of this article, that's where the possibility of a link between the syndrome that was discussed in the research article and a connection to the MMR vaccine is hinted at. It even says, you know, like further research is needed into this. What's really interesting is that the article itself was a case study on a connection between colitis issues in children and behavioral regression syndromes, like what we would typically associate with um, autism or people who are put on the autism spectrum. And that finding of the article gets completely lost in the public follow-up on the publication of this article because everything became so fixated on that possible link between autism and vaccines. Uh, And it actually wasn't until years later that additional research has been done to show that there's actually something to the original research that they were doing.
0: Can you give an example of maybe like the kind of hedge or the use of passive voice that would allow some of these ambiguities to arise? So
1: I don't have the specifics in front of me, but he said things in the article like this condition that we observed may possibly be linked to the MMR vaccine, one of the passive voice constructions was a couple of times throughout the article, he reported That parents associated the onset of these symptoms with receiving the MMR vaccine. But the passive voice construction really emphasizes the association between the two and not the fact that it was the parents reporting that information. And so in the context of this article, it gives the parent reports the same status as like research findings, essentially, to make it seem more certain and more valid than it really was, because it was simply anecdotal reporting based on recall information, which we know is unreliable often.
0: So it's parent parents were saying i think there might be a link and then that gets reported the the parents get hidden by the passive construction is that right
1: yes yeah the parents were saying like oh i i remember that these behaviors started after he got the MMR vaccine or after she got the MMR vaccine. That's when I really started seeing her regress in her language skills or regress in his social skills. So they were making these associations between right, a, a correlation, but mistaking it for causation and thinking, oh, I think maybe the vaccines caused this behavioral regression that gets reported in the article. In this passive voice construction where it emphasizes this correlation and it de-emphasizes the fact that this is parent reporting, not actual research findings. Yeah.
0: And then you talk about these hedges, which, you know, normally are a positive thing in scientific articles, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So one of the tricky things here is that these are all common genre features of a research article or of scientific writing. They're all moves that researchers make to appropriately identify uncertainties or to appropriately hedge What they're claiming, because science never knows anything with 100% certainty, and also because you never, you kind of always want to acknowledge that there's a possibility that that it could be otherwise. But there's kind of a fine line with hedges, right? There's a way in which it marks uncertainty, but it also allows a researcher to try and make the most progressive claims possible to argue that their work has significance and deserves to be published without going too far. And so it is kind of a fine line to walk here, and that's what we see with the Wakefield articles. It kind of crosses the line but in a way that's not ex- not really obvious at the start it's only as this plays out i think in the in the public sphere that we that we recognize the harms that the hedges do in this case so if you read this article from that technical sphere orientation if you read it the way you know these features work in that genre where it's a qualification of certainty it's actually a pulling back of the claim then nothing stands out necessarily. And that's probably why the article got published. That being said, there were definitely some careful hedges that the journal itself made when it published this article, including publishing alongside the Wakefield article, a critical commentary from some others in the field that kind of tried to buffer the response to the Wakefield article's claims in that discussion section. The journal editor, Richard Horton, Clearly, felt that it was important enough, the findings were important enough that they should be published at that time. This is probably partly due to context. So, the Wakefield article came out in the late 90s. And in the early 90s, I don't know if you remember, there was mad cow disease concern in the UK. And there was a, a lot of criticism over how public communication about that was handled. And so, that probably influenced Horton's decision to publish this article.
0: So, he was erring on the side of let's get more information out there because we don't want to repeat the mistakes. That we made yes. in the past about keeping things too guarded or too vague. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, and then we obviously see what happened over the next two decades with this issue. And what's interesting is that, you know, I think there's still questions about how to best handle these kinds of findings. I was actually just listening to a story on the news this morning about recent research that finds that there's an association between the H1N1 flu vaccine and um, miscarriages in early pregnancy. So women who get it in the first trimester, there's an association, not a causation, but an association. That's what the research has found. It's been published. Um, And the news article, one of the scientists associated with the study even said, we felt like we had to publish this even though we knew it would be controversial because we want people to have the information But there was also a heavy stress in the reporting about, you know, practitioners strongly recommend women still get the flu vaccine. It's an important part of prenatal care. So that's a really tough line to walk between sort of having some transparency with the public so that they trust the medical enterprise and their practitioners in particular, but also sort of appropriately framing that information so that that doesn't spin out into this controversy that leads to declining vaccines or actively refusing all vaccines or whatever it might be.
0: No, that's interesting because you want scientists should share their their findings even if they don't necessarily like them. <laughs> but they need to do them in a in a responsible way and I speaking of that, you know what was the reaction from the scientific community when this article was published, the Wakefield article.
1: Yeah, so what was interesting I mentioned that if you read this article from sort of that technical sphere orientation and recognizing the genre features of, of a typical research article, then what Wakefield does, nothing stands out in particular. But if you read it from a public sphere orientation, those hedges work very differently, right? Instead of pulling back on the strength of a claim, they actually open up the possibility of a claim. In a technical sphere orientation, the discussion section is like speculation and calls for future research. But that information gets translated as more certain in the public space. So it's Interesting is that there was quite a few people in the scientific community who actually critiqued the article for more of a public sphere orientation rather than a technical sphere orientation. So it's kind of like they took off their researcher hat and put on their citizen hat or their medical practitioner hat when they read this article and really critiqued it because of concerns about causing a lack of confidence in vaccines or that they would cause parents to not get vaccinated. What is particularly interesting in the reception of this article is that whether people were defending the publication or critiquing the publication of this article, they both grounded their critique in primarily concern for public health. And so the people who critiqued it were worried about a loss of confidence in vaccines. I mentioned previously the editor, Richard Horton, defended it from um, this position of like giving the public important information And at this time, right, when the article was published, there wasn't as much scientific research on this issue as there is now. There has been follow-up research. That research has continually and consistently shown there's not a link between vaccines and autism. But at that point, it was perhaps a valid question to raise, although there Research itself didn't necessarily have the data um, to support that question, but it was a question that was looked into and answered by the scientific community. Well, and
0: science is a lot slower than media coverage is, so you know they can it can take twenty years to yes. establish something, but we don't necessarily want to wait.
1: Yeah, but we we still. Yeah, we remember that that headline from 20 years ago. And that was another thing that was complicating this case, that there was a press conference the day before it was published in the Lancet. And so the same day that it's coming out, it's also being released for public consumption. That press conference really shifted how this article was understood and interpreted in the public. And I think it's that's what really influences the fact that people cite this article when they talk about the autism vaccine issue, because that's how they came to know it is through the press coverage. And the press coverage didn't point out, oh, they explicitly deny that there's a link. They pointed out that concerns were raised. And one of the things that I talk about in the article is that at the press conference there was actually this very somewhat tense exchange between Wakefield and the other authors about what people could conclude from the from the article. Oh, and- interesting.
0: Yeah, at the press conference itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And so at the press conference, Wakefield comes out even more explicitly and says, I'm concerned about the MMR vaccine in combination. I think parents should get it in single dose. And the other authors were like, no, it's still safe to get the vaccine. None of our data proves that. There's not sufficient research to support that recommendation. So it was really Wakefield versus everyone else, essentially, at that press conference. But the articles that came out and the headlines diminished that distinction. And so I point out that some of the, some of the headlines were doctors warn of new childhood vaccine danger, doctors in the plural, not the singular. Or um, they talk about child vaccine linked to autism. So even though in the press conference and the article, they were careful to say we did not prove a link, the headlines reported that there was a link. And so you get this further removal of hedges in the media coverage of it that just further complicates the issue and makes it seem like it's saying this one thing, even though if you look at the article, it's actually saying, no, we didn't prove this thing.
0: Well, it sounds like Wakefield went a little bit off script there. Yeah. like off. Yeah. <laughs> A <laughs> yeah. book away from yes. sort of what the article could support. So
1: it's a really fascinating case because it was later discovered that Wakefield had some significant conflicts of interest. He was being paid by a lawyer who was actually pursuing legal action regarding vaccine damage. It was also found out that the 12 children that they looked at in this case study, it was not a random sample. It was a highly selective sample. And many of those children came from the lawyer, were part of that lawsuit.
0: Oh, my, yeah. So that, yeah, and <laughs> that then, is another big problem. And yeah. then
1: I don't know if he had a patent or had applied for a patent for single-dose MMR vaccines. He was somehow involved with, like, he would have benefited financially from there being a shift from the combination, which combines measles, mumps, and rubella, to separating those three vaccines into separate shots. So he was clearly operating under a conflict of interest that was influencing his interpretations. Although my understanding is that to this day, he maintains his belief and continues to promote the idea that there is there is a connection and has, you know, stood by his original position.
0: Well, what can we learn? You know, this article is almost 20 years old now. This controversy or, you know, manufactured controversy, there's still parents who don't want to vaccinate and it seems to almost be getting worse. Um, what can we learn from this situation about maybe some ways to do science communication better?
1: Well, one thing is, I think sometimes it feels like it's getting worse because of the media coverage. I think media coverage has actually gotten a little bit more critical of vaccine hesitancy or vaccine denial. But in some ways, it's getting better. So the U.S. is really lucky. Unlike the U.K. and some other places in Europe, the vaccine uptake rates never dropped as drastically as they did there. And nationwide vaccine rates are pretty good. The main concern in the U.S. is that there are geographic pockets where vaccine hesitancy is higher or vaccine refusal is higher. So we just saw this past year in Minnesota there was a measles outbreak because the Somali population didn't get the MMR vaccine. They had questions and concerns about it and didn't vaccinate. And so there you see the disease outbreak. Luckily it's been isolated pockets so far. And we've seen some states respond with legislation to try and deal with this issue. So um, both Washington State and California have passed legislation to require um, those parents who want to opt out of a vaccine or some vaccines to get a form signed by some type of medical practitioner, nurse practitioner, their pediatrician, saying that they've been informed of the risks. So there are some states who are doing things to try and make it better. But there are still parents who are hesitant and parents who are delaying or skipping vaccines. So I think you know there's a couple of things that we can talk about. Based on what I studied in the article, I think what might be most Concerning, And what we really need to figure out how to address is the fact that the things that Wakefield did that created the ambiguity to allow him to say what he said in the public space are common features of scientific articles they're not things that would set off red flags for peer reviewers. And so if peer reviewers read articles, if they read them like what we saw in the response to the Wakefield article, where they read it in sort of like the public health mode or their citizen hat, then there's research that might not get published that maybe it should be. But if they read it the way they read the Wakefield article, then research that isn't really supported gets published. So it's not there's not an easy solution here. I think it's all about not just science literacy, but like science communication literacy and teaching people how to understand how science gets reported and teaching people how to understand the accommodation that happens. Jeannie Fonstock talks about accommodating science and how it, the hesitancy or the uncertainty is removed as it's reported along the pipeline from, you know, researcher to public. And so the more the public can understand the way those hedges drop out or how to even understand hedges in the discussion section of a scientific article the better armed they are to interpret the claims that are being made. We have so much access to information now and there's such a push towards giving the public more more access to right the research that's being done, this kind of public accountability. But we also have to give the public the tools to interpret that information, right? They have to understand how to make sense of the information that's given to them or to know who to turn to. So I hate to make a plug for rhetoricians. No, I don't hate to make a plug for rhetoricians. But, you know, a rhetorical mindset that can notice. These are really subtle things that I'm picking out in the article. These aren't things that I would expect someone doing, you know, peer review to necessarily be thinking about, but a rhetorician can think about those things. And so finding a space for that perspective when we live in an age where the timeline between it getting published in the technical sphere and getting published in the public sphere is the same, when there is no delay for the scientific community to really judge the research and decide, is this valid? Is this is this a future direction? Or is this, you know, like, actually, this is specious, and we should pull back on this, then you need to have people who can do that translation work, who can understand both what's happening rhetorically in the technical arena, and also help people in the public arena understand it in ways that are significant for them.
0: Interesting. Well, thanks so much for sharing this with us. This is um, a really interesting still a timely topic. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, there are other other scientific controversies or manufactured controversies with similar features. So, you know, it applies across um, several different situations. Thanks so much for joining us and, and telling us about this today.
1: Absolutely.